0: Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son.
1: And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears.
0: We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal, Bazaar, and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. Working can be such a drag, but it's a necessary evil.
1: What better way to combat the woes of the working world than to commiserate with your fellow man? I'm Jay. And I'm Kay.
0: And we're the hosts of Fuck My Work Life, a comedy podcast where we share people's stories from the workplace.
1: Whether they're funny, weird, scary, or just plain messed up, they're always entertaining and may leave you thinking, you don't have it so bad after all. Available on all major podcast platforms. Give us a listen. Your sanity may just depend on it. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. Thank you for coming back and listening to us again. Declan, what story are you going to tell us today?
0: I'm going to be talking about the North Hollywood shootout.
1: Ooh.
0: What about you? What are you telling us about?
1: I'm going to tell you about a missing 411 person who disappeared while hiking. Again, that's why I don't go hiking. But to go with this story, uh, I brought the Summit Cocktail, which is one twist of fresh lime zest, one slice of fresh ginger root about the size of a thumbnail, uh, one and a half ounce cognac or brandy, two ounces of lemon-lime soda, like Sprite or 7-Up, the steps are to lightly muddle the lime zest and ginger in a mixing glass. Add the other ingredients and uh, stir with ice. Then fine strain into an ice-filled glass. And the garnish I thought was super weird. It's The garnish is not anything that is actually in the drink. You garnish it with a cucumber peel. I don't know why. I I actually did garnish mine because I thought, eh, why not? So, are you ready to try this? I'm yes. I'm thinking it's going to be terrible. Me too. It's actually not bad.
0: It's okay. I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't it's like not it, the but
1: best thing I've it. ever had. Yeah, It reminds me of something, but I can't put my finger on it. Mm. It's really not bad. I don't taste the lime or the ginger.
0: So I thought it meant lime juice and zest, but I didn't read the full thing. So I put a little bit of lime juice in there.
1: Okay. Which I think would probably make it taste better. It's not that it tastes bad. It's just kind of... Nondescript.
0: It's just just like a a flavor. I can't put my finger on it, but it's just weird.
1: I've never had cognac or brandy before. Is it sweet?
0: Yeah, it's like okay. uh, Kind of reminds me of a mix between like bourbon and wine. If that makes any sense, I don't. I don't like brandy.
1: Hmm, it's not bad. It's not terrible. You
0: yeah, could probably give I, it to
1: me at a party and I wouldn't throw it in your face.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want another one, though.
1: True. Okay. Well, the reason I chose this drink uh, is for the name because the story is about a man who was trying to climb to the summit of Mount Shasta. So we're headed back to Northern California (laughs) and to Mount Shasta, where spooky and mysterious things are said to happen. So if you don't remember or you haven't listened to... Uh, our Mount Shasta. Was that like episode. our second that was episode.
0: Number,
1: it was number five. Episode oh, okay. five. Okay. It was early on. So uh if you don't know or haven't heard uh strange things are reported near and on Mount Shasta. Uh and from those can include missing person cases like this one. Um Mysterious underground communities. It also could be a seven-foot-tall white-haired giant or lizard people or even Bigfoot. So weird things associated.
0: We drove past it. I wouldn't say recently, but after we recorded that episode. And we actually saw a lenticular cloud or whatever they're called.
1: We did. We did see a lenticular cloud that... I got lots I'll of pictures of, <laughs> and I did post. I did post um, some of the pictures on our Instagram account. So, if you want to see what Mount Shasta looks like with a cool, freaky-looking cloud near it that some people think look like UFOs, which they actually did kind of look like UFO, but yeah, maybe that's what happened in this case. I don't know. So. This story is about Carl Landers. He was born August 26, 1929, in Chicago, Illinois. He eventually made his way to California. His wife's name was Bobby, and they had three children, two girls and a boy. The family lived in an upscale area east of San Francisco in a town named Orinda. He was very involved in his children's school careers, being an active member of the Parent-Teacher Association and serving on the school board. Carl worked as an engineer, and for the last 10 years of his working career, he worked in sales for a heating and air conditioning company. He was an avid runner and belonged to a local running club. He even ran in the 100th anniversary of the Boston Marathon in 1996, when he was 66 years old. which. In and of itself, it's a pretty amazing thing to do, but to run a marathon at 66 years old, it's pretty wild.
0: It's pretty aggressive. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I don't want to run a marathon and I'm not 66. I don't think I'm going to want to run a marathon when I'm 66, but I'm also not in yeah. a running club. So, true. Carl also had an interest in hiking and climbing. And he set a goal for himself to climb the highest peaks in every county in California. There are 58 counties in California, and Carl climbed several of the peaks, including the highest for the entire state, which was Mount Whitney. Mount Whitney is in eastern central California and is 14,505 feet tall. In May 1998, Carl attempted to climb to the summit of Mount Shasta, located in northern California. He went with his friend, Milt, who he had met at the running club. Milt owned a wholesale warehouse and business in San Francisco. Unfortunately, Carl's attempt to summit Mount Shasta in 1998 was not successful. The following year, when Carl heard his friend, Milt, and another man from the running club planning a trip to Mount Shasta, he asked to join them. The trio of hikers was Milt, Carl, and their friend, Barry Gilmore. Barry was 70 years old and was a retired pilot, having flown for five years for the Navy and then later flying for decades with American Airlines. In May 1999, the men met up in Mount Shasta City, a town at the base of Mount Shasta. They spent the night in a hotel there and left early the next morning at 4 a.m. They were all well-equipped, having ice axes, crampons for their boots, and appropriate clothing for the cold weather. They drove in Barry's four-wheel drive vehicle to Bunny Flat Trailhead. There was snow at the trailhead with drifts of 10 to 12 feet deep. That right there, I'm not hiking. I don't want to hike when the weather's nice. I don't want (laughs) to hike it when there's a, you know, a, a house tall worth of feet of snow. No, thank you. The group decided their first stop on their trip would be a cabin maintained by the Sierra Club. It was a three to four mile hike from the bunny flat trailhead to the cabin. Carl had previous bad experiences with altitude sickness, so he was taking a prescription medication to combat the symptoms. Unfortunately, it also caused some gastrointestinal problems that forced Carl to go behind a tree with diarrhea while they were making their climb. Soon the group arrived in an area referred to as the 50 50. Due to high winds in the afternoon, the men decided to stop here and camp for the night. They set up their three person tent tight against the mountain between two boulders, giving them some safety from the wind. Except for Carl having to leave the tent a few times with his gastrointestinal problems, the men had a normal night. Early the next morning, the winds were going about 70 miles an hour but thankfully their tent position protected them. They stayed inside their sleeping bags in the tent, but saw several people leaving Lake Helen and going back down the mountain. They waited inside the tent for a few more hours until the winds died down. They started seeing people hiking back up the hill, so they decided to start out for the day. They decided to put the tent and sleeping bags away with the intent of leaving them at the 50-50 while they made their way to Lake Helen. While Milt and Barry were packing up, they noticed Carl appeared to be getting cold, so they told him to go on ahead and they would catch up. The 50 50 is about 600 feet below Lake Helen, which was a common place for many hikers to stop and camp before the last push towards the peak. The men weren't sure if they would reach the summit that day due to the weather, but wanted to proceed to the lake and make the determination from there. Barry and Milt finished packing up the camp in less than 30 minutes. They headed to Lake Helen. Almost halfway between 50-50 and the lake, Barry started feeling ill. He told Milt he would go back, grab the tent, then meet them at his vehicle. Milt finished the hike to Lake Helen, where he found around 20 campsites and a park ranger, but no Carl. He asked the ranger if a man had come through, and the ranger confirmed a man did come through and proceeded towards the peak on a casual route. Milt went after the hiker, thinking it might be Carl. However, when Milt got closer to the hiker, he realized the man was going faster than what Carl could climb, and Milt couldn't catch him. Milt returned to Lake Helen and spoke with the ranger again. He gave the ranger Carl's description, but the ranger said no one had come through there matching that description. Milt decided to return to the fifty-fifty, hoping that Carl would be there waiting, but he wasn't. Both Milt and Carl's backpacks were there, as Barry had taken his own pack with him back to the car. By now it was 5 p.m. Milt decided to wait another hour to see if Carl would show. When he didn't, Milt decided to head back to Barry's car, but he left Carl's pack in case Carl made it back to the 50-50. Milt made it to Barry's vehicle around 7 or 8 p.m., and they notified the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Office about Carl going missing. The search began the next morning. When Milton Barry got to the trailhead the following morning, the search crews were assembling from the U.S. Forest Service and the county sheriff's office. Barry called Carl's wife, Bobby, and informed her that Carl was missing. I can't even imagine getting a phone call like that.
0: Especially if he's, like, done it before. It seems like he's got experience. It's like, how does this guy just disappear?
1: Right. And interestingly, Bonnie, or uh, Bobby, his wife, said that she'd had a premonition that something was going to happen. That afternoon, Milt's wife and Bobby flew to Mount Shasta City to be near the search. Milt recalled, it was, and it was confirmed, that there were no large crevasses in the area uh, where they were hiking. Nothing that Carl could, could have fallen in and there were no places that Carl could have hidden or disappeared into. There was no explanation where Carl could have gone. Milton Berry went back up the mountain to find Carl. When they got to the 50-50, Carl's back, his backpack was still there. They continued on to Lake Helen and talked to the ranger again. The ranger confirmed, again, no one matching Carl's description had been seen. The That's epistles, not good. The, Right. The official ugh, The official search was headed by a man named Grizz Adams, who had extensive background in search and rescues. He had been involved in hundreds of them. Grizz had an Army Gizzy National Adams Guard like helicopter.: a
0: famous mountain man.
1: <laughs> so yes, that was a TV show. Um, but this guy's name is Grizz. Close.
0: Um, <laughs> OK. He,
1: I know. Pretty funny. Uh, He had an Army National Guard helicopter take professional climbers to the peak. The climbers then descended using different routes in an effort to find Carl along one of them. However, they found nothing. Literally nothing. They didn't find any tracks. They didn't find his helmet. They didn't find his ice axe. Nothing. It's common for people in snowy environments who start to get hypothermia to take items of clothing off. Or if a hiker gets distressed, they might drop some of their gear so they don't have to carry it any longer. None of the gear and none of Carl's clothing were ever located. And the clothing would have at least been visible and seen on the snow, but they didn't find anything. They had cadaver dogs and human scent tracking dogs come up, and they couldn't find any sign of Carl either. They couldn't track anything. Super weird. It is very weird. In the months after the disappearance, Milt hired psychics in an effort to learn something, but none of the information panned out and each had a different story about what had happened to Carl. The search and rescue leader, who had over 400 searches in his background, was later interviewed. He said that Carl's search was one of two searches that he had been involved in, Out of those 400, where there was literally no trace of the person ever found. Some locals believe in the Lemurians. Those are the uh, ones we talked about in episode five that are rumored to live in the hidden city of Telos, deep inside of Mount Shasta. And the locals believe that they came out of their caves and took Carl with them. Some locals, the locals that believe in the Lemurians think that that might be an explanation as to what happened. But they still haven't found any sign of him, so.
0: Wow, but if he is with the Lemurians, I wonder if they ate him or just kept him as a pet or something.
1: Maybe. I mean, he's not seven feet tall, so he's not going to blend in with them.
0: It's true. All right, let's get into the North Hollywood shootout. So let's begin by setting the stage. Larry Eugene Phillips Jr., and I'm going to mess this guy's name up bad, but Emil Dishbal Matasarino.
1: Okay.
0: (laughs) Uh, So they were the central figures in this story. Before their fateful bank robbery, these two individuals were no strangers to crime. Both had extensive criminal records and ties to various networks, making them seasoned criminals prepared to challenge the authority of law enforcement. Born and raised in Southern California, Larry Eugene Phillips had a troubled upbringing marked by a lack of stability and frequent brushes with the law. By the time of the North Hollywood shootout, he had already committed a series of violent offenses, making him a person of interest to the police. Emil, on the other hand, was a Romanian immigrant who moved to the United States seeking seeking a better life. Unfortunately, he ended up involved in criminal activities, including robbery and illegal weapons possessions. His alliance with Phillips would lead to a deadly partnership. Now that we have an understanding of who was involved, let's take a closer look at the timeline of events that unfolded on that fateful day on the morning of February 28, 1997 at approximately 9:17 a.m. Phillips and uh Emil boldly entered the bank of they boldly entered the Bank of America branch on Laurel Canyon Boulevard in North Hollywood. They were wearing heavy body armor and armed with fully automatic AK-47s and other firearms. They were ready to carry out as uh, they were ready to carry out their maliciously planned bank heist. Their plans, however, encountered unexpected obstacles as they attempted to access the bank's vault. The silent alarm was triggered, alerting the security guard who discreetly notified the police. Within minutes, officers from the LAPD's uh, North Hollywood Division arrived at the scene, including Officer Lauren Farrell and Officer Martin Whitfield. The first responders who would find themselves immediately outgunned and unable to engage the robbers effectively. The shootout commenced when Phillips and Emil stepped out of the bank. Heavily armed and armored, they unleashed a hail of bullets firing indiscriminately at LAPD officers, civilians, and police vehicles. The standard-issued handguns and shotguns carried by the police officers were no match for the robbers' high-powered rifles and body armor. Officers took cover behind buildings, trees, civilian vehicles, and desperately returned fire while calling for backup. Wow. The intensity of the gun battle escalated and news helicopters broadcasting the event live became a significant factor in the public's perception of the incident. Millions of viewers across the nation watched the harrowing events unfold in real time. During the shootout, numerous officers and civilians were injured, and among them were Officer Zob... Mess this guy's name up too. Zob. Z- <laughs> Zaboravan. Hang on, let me try that again. Zaboravan So Z- sure, let's go with Zaboravan uh, Root oh no. and Mendoza were demonstrated. <laughs> what?
1: Just <gasps> the name. I can't even imagine what it.
0: Okay. Z b o r a v a n. Zaboravan I guess.
1: Maybe. I don't know. Your okay, guess as so... good as mine
0: multiple officers. We'll just say that <laughs> demonstrated incredible bravery while attempting to engage the heavily armed criminals. The LAPD's SWAT team was called to uh to provide support and tactical expertise. The SWAT officers were better equipped to deal with the the guns and the armor that they had. So, they were called to initiate on the robbers. At approximately 10:01, which was uh about 45 minutes after they entered the bank,
1: okay. nearly
0: 44. Oh, it said that in my screen. <laughs> Let me restart that. At approximately 10 01 a.m., nearly 44 minutes after the initial gunfire, Phillips and uh, Emil were cornered in a nearby residential area. During the final exchange of gunfire, both perpetrators sustained fatal injuries. Phillips died at the scene, and uh, Emil was taken to the hospital, where he later died from his wounds. The North Hollywood shootout was a terrifying display of violence and firepower. Uh, The two men clad in black body armor, armed with military-style rifles, showed no hesitation at firing in anything and anyone that got in their way. The deafening sounds of automatic gunfire filled the air as the robbers exchanged a barrage of bullets with the responding officers. Police cruisers were quickly disabled by the robbers, armor-piercing rounds, leaving the officers exposed and vulnerable. So these guys were working with some heavy-duty firepower that's really hard to get. I don't know what the gun laws were like back then, but I don't think you can own automatic weapons. Fully automatic, I should say. Yeah desperate to find cover the officers took refuge behind uh buildings trees and civilian vehicles despite their perilous situation they bravely returned fire trying to neutralize the threat but most of the officers weren't really doing much cuz they had like real body armor so yeah it, it was stopping a lot of their rain the the rounds that mm. the police were shooting uh LAPD's initial response was so overwhelmed that they called Every, everybody from the area, like, get your ass down here, including SWAT. SWAT officers armed with uh, more powerful weapons were able to get closer to the robbers and force them into the neighborhood where they died. Um, the shootout was chaotic and terrifying for the surrounding community. The rapid exchange yeah. of gunfire echoed through the streets, causing panic amongst residents and passerbys. The, new, the helicopter above didn't help either because everyone was watching this. I, right. I wasn't around. Did you watch it on the news? Like, was that something I that you saw? I,
1: I didn't see it, no. Um, oh, okay. But I didn't pay attention to the news back then. You know, I, I think I have seen footage of it since then as an adult, but... Not the live footage. I personally think live coverage of things like that should not be allowed. People don't need to see that.
0: Yeah. I you don't know, I'm kinda torn on it because on one hand, it it's No, it's not good to watch. Never mind, I'm gonna torn on it.
1: <laughs> I, I just I mean so imagine Imagine you're sitting there at home and you know that you have a family member that works at that bank or that works in a business near that bank and you see this helicopter footage going on. Maybe you're- I think it
0: would be better to see then because they probably didn't have know. like, they wouldn't be able to communicate. So it's like, oh, they're, they're shooting at, towards my- Significant other's b- business, but right. But do you want to actually it. So see it that? Maybe give you some peace of mind. I don't know. Would you
1: want to actually see it? I wouldn't want to see it. It would be so yeah, stressful. And it. I mean, imagine. Uh, okay, so your significant other works at the, you know, the office next door to the bank, and you see that this is going on. Well, maybe. Your significant other went out to, you know, run an errand and they weren't even in the office when all this went down. And you're sitting there thinking that they are. knows? I just don't. I don't know. It's pretty complicated. I don't think that, right. But then, okay, what about the wives of the cops who, of the police officers who are, who are involved in this, you know, um, this yeah. stuff is living on forever because it was on live TV. They never get to get away from that. Just like all of this the massive tragedies. Like,
0: like a murder docs where they show like the autopsy photos or something. It's like, yeah, I mean, we're not helping either because I'm sure if someone had their family member murdered when we talk about it, they probably don't appreciate it, but...
1: But we also do it respectfully. You know, I don't know. I just I I have an issue with with that live stuff. Reporting after the fact is different than seeing it live and not knowing what's happened to the people or I don't know. That's just my own. I don't like that stuff.
0: So the incident came to an end as the two men were cornered by SWAT team in a residential area. They made it, and I think they were caught in an alleyway. The robbers continued to fire relentlessly, but they could not escape the overwhel- overwhelming force of the SWAT team. Ultimately, both criminals succumbed to their wounds, uh, ending the violent ordeal. The North Hollywood shootout had far-reaching implications for law enforcement practices and the public perception of policing. The incident exposed the inadequacy of standard police equipment and training when dealing with heavily armed criminals. As a result, law enforcement agencies across the United States recognized the need for better armed and equipped officers to confront such threats effectively. In response to the incident, LAPD and other law enforcement agencies enhanced their training in dealing with active shooter situations, introduced better protective gear for officers, and acquired more powerful weapons to match the firepower of violent criminals. Which is a good thing if these guys have AK-47s and the cop have only a shotgun and a pistol, and you're pretty outgunned. No matter how many cops you have, that's a fucking—that's a— very powerful round that's coming out of that gun, even if it's not armor-piercing, but they happen to have armor-piercing rounds in them. So it was really doing some damage. Yikes. Which is kind of cool. I think uh, they took inspiration from this for uh, one of the bank heists in GTA, because it's right on the main area where they were shooting, and you have to run into a residency. uh, uh, You have to run into a neighborhood. And like steal okay. bikes and get away. It's oh, it's a pretty wow. fun mission, but they took like direct um what do you call it? Inspiration from this. So gotcha. You can actually play this this story yeah. you know, GTA game.
1: I like a good heist. I do. I Heists
0: do are always, everybody loves a good heist.
1: Right. I it
0: just but you know, it's sad when call this it gets particularly a heist. <laughs> This is no. just two dummies with a bunch of guns and armor around it and yeah. taking your shit. It's more yeah. like a break in and entering.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, do you have a chaser for us?
1: I do have a chaser. So my chaser is, um, an animal shelter in Germany is using a popular app to get their animals, uh, some new attention. So the, they're trying to figure out new ways to get animals adopted and they created, uh, bios for, um, the animals and got them some professional photos done and they posted them on Tinder. So you can go on to Tinder in this area in Germany and swipe through animals that are needing to be adopted. And then if you match with the animal, they, you know, ask you some questions. And you can arrange for a, a meet and greet with your little animal buddy and decide if you want to adopt them.
0: Oh, that's I cute. thought that
1: was super cute.
0: Yeah. Hope people get adopted is always great.
1: Yeah. Now, what is your my, chaser?
0: My chaser is a movie recommendation, and I can't remember nice. if I already recommended it or not. So you're going to have to let me Uh-oh. know if it sounds familiar. Okay. But it's a movie called Beast with... um.
1: Oh, so
0: I can't remember the actor's name. But anyways, it's a movie about a dad who takes his um, daughters on a safari in Africa. And one of the, there's like a rogue lion in the area. And it's just like eating people. And so their tour guide ends up getting attacked. And they have to like escape this crazy lion that's trying to kill everybody. And it's oh, wow! A really, like, it'll have you on the edge of your seat for most of the movie, but it's really good. I <laughs> wish I could remember that guy's name. He's really famous. Uh, it's got, um, yeah, whatever. I, oh, it's got Idris Elba in it. Gosh, I was trying oh, to think of his name. In okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's got Idris Elba in it it's, as the main character trying to kill the lion. It's a pretty good movie. I recommend everyone no, watch
1: I don't it. think you No, I don't think you've made that recommendation before. I'll have to okay. check it out. Awesome. Well, thanks for telling that brutal story about the heist yeah. that was not really a heist. It was just violence.
0: <laughs> it was a shootout. Yeah. To
1: rob a bank. And didn't yeah. get any
0: money because they're all dead.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Whoops. I love you, mom.
1: love you too. Bye.
0: Yeah.
1: Hey, friends. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends. Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. But maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place.
0: You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.